Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, who has been named the Arizona Republic's Arizonan of the Year? And the often fraught relationship between football players and food. But first, the Arizona Supreme Court dismissed a high-profile child sex abuse lawsuit against the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints late last year, ruling in favor of church officials because of the state's clergy penitent privilege. The justices said the officials had no duty to report that a church member had been abusing his daughter because the information was received during a confession. The ruling sparked outrage from some, and at the same time, one Democratic lawmaker tried to introduce a bill in the Arizona legislature that would make it mandatory for clergy to report child sex abuse, even if they learned about it in a confessional setting. The bill was blocked by Republican Representative Kwong Wen, who said as a Catholic, he saw it as an affront to an essential sacrament in his faith. So what is the religious defense of this clergy penitent privilege, and why is it essential to many faiths? For some insight into those questions, I got a hold of Dr. Michael Matza, a Catholic canon and civil lawyer a lawyer, as well as a professor at Marquette Law School in Milwaukee. Essentially, the, the clergy penitent privilege is, is just a recognition by the secular government of the importance of a very specific type of speech that is, you know, the communication between a member of the faithful and someone in a position of spiritual authority. And then on the civil side, it's protected. It's long been protected, right? Yeah, it's been protected in a various number of countries uh, through centuries even. There's uh, even one famous case of a, of a Catholic priest named John uh, Nepomuchin in the 14th century in Bohemia. He was martyred by the king when the priest wouldn't tell the king what the king's wife had, had told the priest in confession. Hmm, that's so interesting. So this goes way, way back. Okay, um, so let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of a confession, right? Like this in a Catholic point of view, at least from where you're coming from, might not be what people think it is from the movies, right? But tell us, first of all, just how it works. Yeah, that's a that's a great question uh, because the privilege in the state law really protects any kind of confidential communication between, you know, the practitioner of a person's faith and the, the spiritual leader. Mm-hmm. But in the and I can't speak to you know other religions, but what I can speak to is the Catholic practice. And it's it might not be what people uh, exactly think. In other words, somebody goes in, it's not you know a general counseling session. Uh, the priest almost never knows the identity of the person uh, who is going to confession. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the person has a right to go behind a screen to protect confidentiality, also to just limit distractions. The Mm. priest also has a right in canon law to only hear confessions in the same way. Like he doesn't want to see the person who's going to confession to him either. Okay, so this is a little different than you might think. So tell us, you know, from your point of view, teaching canon law and teaching the civil law around this kind of privilege, like what's your 
what's your take on on what's happening in the civil debate around this right now, especially when it comes to this Arizona case we saw and, you know, sort of outrage over what happened in terms of protecting that clergy privilege and these children being abused? Right, right. Well, you know, as a lawyer, I always try to see things from a number of perspectives. And I think that the best argument or the strongest argument against the privilege, you know, would run something like this. You have a very vulnerable population here, a a very vulnerable person who's at risk or actually being harmed. And we have to do all that we can as a society to stop it. Mm -hmm. So that's the strongest argument, I think. Now, I think that argument's wrong and it'll ultimately fail. There are arguments in favor of the privilege, and I think they're very strong. First, I don't think anybody wants to live in a society where the government hears and sees everything we do in order to prevent crimes. Mm. You know, that's the stuff of like futuristic horror movies. And we've already carved out other privileged communications, including especially the most famous, I think, is the attorney-client privilege, you know, which can actually encourage people to get the, the help that they need. And this goes to a second reason, you know, communications between a person and someone who has dedicated his life to the service of others and their religious needs, that's worth protecting, both on a philosophical level, that, you know, it says religious practice is a good worth fostering, and also on a practical level. Sometimes the only way to help the most desperate people in our society is by encouraging them to seek spiritual help. So uh, spiritual help is one thing, but if someone's being hurt, right, like that's the question you're going to get from folks. And I'm sure you get this question from students all the time when you teach this kind of thing. I wonder, like, what is the priest's responsibility in that? If they're not allowed to reveal what was said to them, how do you counsel in a spiritual way that might at least contribute to, you know, stopping a crime from happening? Yeah, that's a very... uh... Good question. And I think it calls for an important clarification. Priests in the course of their ministry hear a lot of things. They engage in counseling all the time. Mm -hmm. And in some states, uh, priests and others in similar positions, teachers, counselors, whatever, they are mandatory reporters. And so they very well may need to report. Mm -hmm. The priest penitent privilege or the, the clergy penitent privilege is a very specific type of exclusion, you know, that certain kinds of those communications must not be uh, turned over to the authorities. That's really interesting. You also talked about the fact that many priests have gone to jail or would go to jail to protect this, right? This was, it almost is like beside the point what the civil law says at one point, you think. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, it's it's interesting because I think this is drummed into the heads of every, uh, certainly every Catholic seminarian, that uh, canon law absolutely forbids any use whatsoever of any knowledge gained in a sacramental confession. Mm. So again, it's it's extremely narrow, but it's it's extreme. It's you must not use it in any way. I mean, I know priests are going to go to jail before they ever violate the seal of the confessional. Under the canon law, if you violate the seal of the confessional, you get excommunicated. I mean, what what strikes me about talking to you about this issue is that, and you do this in your work, right? Like you straddle the line between the religious world and the civil world, right? In terms of the law, is is there sort of like a, something lost in translation, almost in the coverage of these kinds of cases and in the public understanding of them, because we're we're basically not speaking the same language. Yeah, I think that's true. I think 
the the motivation for uh, you know legislative activity in this regard to curtail the privilege. I, I get it. I mean, I, I, I can sympathize with it. I just think it's a it's a good intention, but it would result in very, very bad legislation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's not going to work either. The other here's the thing, right? If the state comes in and says, hey, uh, you clergy, you need to turn over to us certain kinds of uh, communications that we think are, represent a harm to mm-hmm. the society. And it very well might be very serious harms. Mm-hmm. People are, are, are not going to go. They're not going to go to confession at all. Mm-hmm. And of course, if someone is really that um, diabolical, do you, you think he's actually going to go to a sacramental confession? Mm-hmm. I appreciate you taking the time. That's Dr. Michael Matza, canon and civil lawyer, professor at Marquette Law School in Milwaukee, talking to us more about this privilege. Dr. Matza, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for taking the time here. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Lauren. Thank you. College bowl season is almost over, and many NFL teams are jockeying for a spot in the playoffs. All of that means there is a lot of football on TV. And when we watch games, it's not uncommon to see graphics or hear the announcers mention a player's height and weight. But especially for offensive linemen, often the biggest and heaviest players on the field, what does it take to get to the weight they need to achieve to play? Logan Stanley delved into that question in a piece for Cronkite News. He's a high school sports reporter for the Arizona Republic and said he's always been interested in the intersection of food and sports. He spoke with my co-host Mark Brody about what he learned, and they started with the story of one of the former players Stanley talked to who played at ASU in the 90s when sports science wasn't quite what it is today. He said this player talked pretty openly about having to eat all the time and how eating almost became a full-time job for him. Yeah, Kyle Murphy's a player talking about, and his interview was really eye-opening for myself because I kind of use him as a contrast for, like you mentioned, he played in the 90s when sports nutrition um, and sports science wasn't at the level that it is today. And he gave some really eye-opening quotes. Um, for example, he talked about how when he said the line that eating was a chore, and that really stood out to me that you know eating became a chore for him. And then another line, another quote that stuck out to me where he talked about how you know, you ever had the Thanksgiving sweats, you know, the meat sweats? Well, imagine that's your life the whole time. Wow. And those really set out to me. Um, and also talking about he had to take out loans for how much uh, food or how much money he was spending on for food. And that was really just striking to me. And this was all sort of coming at the encouragement of his coaches, right? Basically telling him you need to gain more weight. You need to be 300 plus pounds to play this position at this level. Yeah, most definitely. Um, he came in a little bit underweight, about 255 pounds. Um, and he had a, about a 50 50 pound gap to make up. And that meant he had to really eat a lot of food. And like I said, back then, you know, the message was just eat. We don't really care about how you do it. Just eat as much as you can. And that message, you know, led to some pretty dangerous eating habits as you uh, as you saw in the article. Well, so at what point did he realize that his relationship with food was maybe not the healthiest? And like, how easy or difficult was it for him to change that? Yeah, that was was really interesting when I was talking to him as well, is that he didn't actually it's very later on in life when he thought about it. It's actually said about three years ago, two years ago, when he started to reflect back upon his life and what it, his relationship was like with food. And he realized it was not healthy the way he was feeling at the moment. And he realized, you know, I need to make a change right then and there. And since then, he's been uh, a very clean eater and he's really started to take a more uh, comfortable and um, 
thoughtful approach to how he eats. And it's really been a kind of a process for him these past few years, kind of a self-introspection for himself. What did you hear from offensive linemen who maybe played a little more recently when there's been perhaps a bit more focus on, on actual nutrition, not just gaining weight? Yeah, I talked to a high school lineman who plays at Chandler and then also a college lineman at ASU. And both of them had quotes that were very illuminating that showed how much the times have changed. You know, for example, at ASU, they have a whole staff where their whole job, one job, is to make sure these players are eating the right food, hmm. their whole sports nutrition staff. And, you know, they talk about how they're told the right carbs, the right proteins, and it matters what you put into what you eat because it's the type of energy you're going to get out of it. And you, you can eat a lot of food and gain weight, but that's not the right way to go about it. You need to eat the right foods. And that's what's really changed over time, realizing what type of foods to eat, not just all types of foods. But to be clear, these players are still fairly heavy, right? There's still 300 plus pound human beings playing sports. There are some challenges that come along with that, right? Oh, most definitely. And, you know, it's being, being that heavy is certainly hard, but it's, it's, it's the way they gain the weight nowadays and the way they've gone about it. It's a much healthier way and the way they're more nimble and agile nowadays compared. And you see that the way they play, the, the players on the line are much more athletic than nowadays. And I think that's because of the result of the nutrition that the advances we've seen in sports nutrition and the sports technology overall. What did the players say about their mental health during the time that they were trying to gain that weight and the times that they were playing at that weight? Yeah, um, that was one thing that I was um, a little bit surprised about that they actually said they didn't really struggle with body image issues. Um, when I asked Kyle about that, he said during the time he didn't. Um, what, when you talk about it, you know, later in life, you definitely think, you know, I definitely was, I did not like the way I looked and the way I felt. Um, and then with the linemen nowadays, they definitely, um, because I think also a society, we're much more open with mental health. It's much more talked about nowadays um, along linemen that they actually didn't struggle with it too much um, in th- this day and age, which was, which was a little bit surprising to myself. So one of the players you talked to is now a coach himself. And I'm wondering what he had to say about using his experience as a lineman now dealing with younger players who are dealing with and maybe struggling with some of the same issues he did. Yeah, one of the coaches I talked to was uh, Rick Gerritsen, who's over at Chandler. Um, they're one of the most winningest programs in state history. A lot of people in Arizona know who Chandler uh, High School is for football. And his quote was, you know, we, we, he said, we don't have fat boys anymore. We have athletes. He talked about how he's seen it evolved over time. Um, and he's, he's seen it evolved him, himself as well because he's been a coach for about 30 years now. And he's seen how sports nutrition has changed from when it was in the 90s and where it is now. Now he at the school, they have a whole strength, a strength and conditioning coach whose job is to help the athletes out with eating and to make sure that they're getting the right proteins. And um, yeah. Did he talk at all about sort of age appropriate nutrition in terms of helping these these linemen to gain the weight they need for being in high school versus like having them ready to play at college versus having them ready to play in, in the NFL? Yeah, that's what Nate Arnold, who works at Chandler in the strength conditioning, strength and conditioning uh, department, specifically mentioned. He's like, I'm keeping in mind that these are high school kids I'm dealing with. These are not grown men I'm dealing with. I need to make sure that that's factored into my equation when I'm telling them what to eat because, yes, we are trying to get them big, but we don't want them to be at the size that they're going to be in college because they need to get it's a gradual shift it's not all at once because that's when you become bloated and it's really unhealthy so it's a much more gradual shift so that way when they get to that point for college they're ready to go and gain that weight and they're not already too sluggish or um you know unhealthy and in terms of the coaches like i would imagine this is an area of 
of science, you know, be it, be it sports medicine, sports health, sports science, sports nutrition, that is still kind of evolving, right? That like when we look back in 10 years, things will probably look a lot different than they do now. Oh, most definitely. I mean, imagine where we were 10 years ago now, you know, what we knew in 2013. You know, I cited um, a study that was published in 2014, 2015. So, you know, even in that time period, we've seen the science evolve and course, we're going to figure out new things as we just get smarter as society and technology develops. And that's just going to be better, I think, for the game of football and for the players uh, who are participating in it as well. Did any of the people you talked to suggest that at some point offensive linemen might not need to be as heavy as they have needed to be? Well, I think you're already kind of seeing it with the type of players are in the league and, and, and playing and whatnot and the type of um, attributes they're bringing to the table. You know, we're having linemen running 40, uh, 40 yard dash times that we have never seen before. Mm. So I think we're already starting to see that trickle down effect. And I think, th- I think there will be a certain threshold no matter what you will be at the, a certain weight. But, you know, I are, we're already seeing that you can be down 280, you know, and that's okay. It's, um, it won't, it won't keep you off for being a roster. You know, uh, it's definitely the parameters have changed for sure. Yeah, that is really interesting. All right. Logan Stanley, thanks a lot for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how writing a novel helped an author deal with her own traumatic past. That fictional scaffolding allowed me to um, inject a lot of the very real feelings that I had about that night and that I still have about it. We'll hear how she processed that event long before the Me Too movement articulated what she had been feeling for years. But first... It is the start of a new year, and that means the front page of the Arizona Republic this week features the Arizonans of the year. It's a spot that's been held by many of the great leaders in our state in years past. And this year, the title goes to two tribal leaders here, Stephen Rowe Lewis, governor of the Gila River Tribe, and Colorado Indian Tribes chairwoman Amelia Flores. The editorial board of the Republic says the two have become influential water caretakers in our state and region at a crucial time. And Elvia Diaz, editorial page editor of The Republic, joins us now to tell us why they have named these two the Arizonans of the Year. Good morning, Elvia. Happy New Year. Good morning. Happy New Year to you. Okay, so tell us why these two leaders and why water being the issue of focus here this year. Well, I think you would agree that water has been one of the greatest issues of 2023. And so when we were discussing uh, the Arizonans of the Year as a board, obviously we had, uh, as we always do, you know, other contenders. And so the more that we talked about it uh, amongst ourselves, the more that it became pretty clear that uh, these two tribal leaders were the ones that we needed to pick. They absolutely deserve the recognition. So as you said, water, an incredibly important issue uh, in our state and in our state's future right now. But tell us more about these two people in particular. They were both born and raised here. Tell us about them. Well, you know what, the more that I read about them, the more that I thought why we haven't highlighted them more often uh, during the uh, the year when it comes to water, and not just in 2023, but before, you know, Gila River Governor Stephen Lewis and Colorado River Indian Tribe Chairwoman Amelia Flores, 
they had been at the table for a while now uh, when it comes to water. Obviously, there are so many other characters on this, but I mean, when it comes to tribal and the reservations, I mean, they truly have done an amazing work. And not just recently, you know, that they had been at it for, for a long, long time. You know, Lewis, for instance, you know, he has a long history of uh, dealing with water. You know, his father, uh, the late Rod Lewis, is the one that secured the community water rights, you know, more than 650,000 acre feet of water a year for that community. That's Mm -hmm. huge. That's absolutely huge. And, you know, Flores, too, I mean, she has been at the table for three decades and been mentored by elders in her community. You know, she has a rich history and traditions and what have you all around water. So I, I think the shocking part to me is why we haven't talk more about them. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about what these two have done in particular this year as well, because there have been a lot of sort of major news stories and major, you know, governmental acts that they've been involved in from Congress to, you know, local deals to regional deals. Tell us about those. Well, Florence, for instance, you know, she is credited for helping to push uh, legislation over the finish line in January of last year. So allowing the Colorado River Indian tribes to lease some of their water to others in Arizona. Again, that's a that's an important deal. It hasn't been finalized because local uh, jurisdictions still have to approve it by the fact that she was able to help Congress authorize that deal, you know, speaks volumes about her work and her ability to navigate the federal uh, government. And as as you recall, I mean, water rights are one of the most difficult things to deal with because it's not just one entity. Mm -hmm. You always have to deal with so many local and federal jurisdictions. And, you know, that the reservations have had their water rights and now they have the ability to be at the table and make the decisions themselves. And, you know, like I mentioned in Flores' case, you know, that she was she was instrumental in getting that federal uh, legislation. And so work is not over uh, yet for her. Yeah, yeah. And and Stephen Rowe Lewis from Gila River was a big voice in negotiating the deal that conserved a lot of water in Lake Mead. He got a pipeline to his community from Mesa. There was a big story also about solar panels being put over the tribal canals, which I know is an innovation in this realm. Tell us about what he's done this year. Oh, he was able to secure more than 650,000 acre feet of water, like I mentioned before. And to put that in in, in perspective, that's more than twice what the city of Phoenix delivers mm-hmm. to homes. So now, you know, because of his work, uh, the tribe is entitled to a lot more water because of what he has done. So he's been at the table, you know, from solar panels that you, that, that you were mentioning to really negotiating water and being a sound voice for Arizona no? um, and mm-hmm. for farmers and for, for everyone here in this state. Yeah. This also comes at a moment, I think, Elvia, when tribes are gaining some traction in terms of being at the negotiating table, envisioning our water future, like being a part of those discussions, which for so long they were kept out of. 
Oh, yes. I mean, talking about what he did, you know, in mid-year, he, for, for instance, Lewis specifically, you know, was instrumental in, in a 200 and something million dollar deal to leave water in Lake Mead. And remember those stories that we were talking about, you know, throughout the year that the lake is so low. So, yes, I mean, water is going to be, well, it is already, but it's going to be even more important as we move into the future because it's a limited is a limited resource. Mm -hmm. So right now we have to be looking at ways to share the water. And it turns out that they have those water rights, you know, and uh, and rightly so. So of course it is extremely important for them to be be at the table and, you know, to have a say on on what we do. I mean, it is still amazes to me. And I think you and I have been talking about this, that Mm -hmm. not a lot of people pay attention to the lack of water because when you turn your water faucet, so well, you know, water is there, Uh, but but, but it's really not. I mean, we're only talking about a few years, Um, you know, 20 years is really nothing when it comes to allocating water resources when when there's none and we're depleting the source. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're going to be hearing about water for uh, foreseeable future, certainly in 2024, and they are going to be instrumental, their knowledge. So this is not the last time they're going to be hearing about them. Yeah. All right. Alvia Diaz, editorial page editor of the Arizona Republic, joining us to talk about the Arizonans of the year. Alvia, thanks. As always, appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. This fall here on KJZZ, we've been taking a closer look at something that often goes ignored in polite circles, menopause. Senior field correspondent Kathy Ritchie has been deep in the world of menopause as she's producing her podcast, period, the end, but not really. She just wrapped up those episodes and joins me now to talk more about what she learned. Hey there, Kathy. Hey, Lauren. Okay, so you came on the show when the podcast launched, and we talked about a few of the things that that you learned here, how menopause could have been an evolutionary advantage, how it can be connected to cardiovascular health. So today, let's talk about something you hit on a little later in the podcast series, menopause at work. Tell us a little bit about how women navigate this. Women are leaving the workforce because of menopause, you found? Yeah, you know, I think we still talk about women who are coming back to the workplace after they've had a baby. On the other end of that spectrum, you have women who are in their late 40s and early 50s who are experiencing sometimes very severe menopausal symptoms. You know, there are women who who suffer from extreme bleeding, abnormal bleeding. You know, those are things that we don't often think about. So it sounds like there are places, at least, maybe not here in the U.S., but places in which they're working on this, like workplaces are going through trainings, trying to do HR kind of level policies to to address this better. Well, you know, I I learned in the course of all of this reporting in the United Kingdom, the National Health Service there, they're one of the largest employers of women, right? So it actually became imperative that they create a menopause-friendly work environment because it it was critical to retaining staff. And so honestly, what they're doing could be done anywhere my opinion. Um, You know, things like offering a flexible work schedule, providing fans, access to cold water, staff training, which I actually think is really important for managers to understand that this is a part of life. 
It's a part of reproductive health care and offering cooler uniforms for, for certain staff members, um, mm-hmm. perhaps something that, you know, can wick away sweat if you're having a hot flash. So, so those are the things that they are doing. And, and it's really critical you know, to workforce stuff. And here in the U.S., I haven't heard about too many places that are offering it. I'm sure there's maybe smaller conversations happening, I hope. And I think I think it's a fair question for staff, for an employer to say, you know, what is our policy when it comes to menopause? Because ultimately, you know, the Mayo Clinic did a study earlier this year of roughly 4,000 women. And we talk about this in the podcast. And what they found was that there are women who are not only just, you know, they're leaving the workforce, they're reducing their hours, they're perhaps changing jobs because, you know, they it's just too much. Mm-hmm. But that has consequences, Lauren, down the line when we start thinking about retirement, right? So if you're in the prime of your career and you leave the workforce in your 50s, mm-hmm. that hasn't impact on your 401k, your ability to save for the future. So I think those are conversations that we have to start having. And, and, you know, I understand that sometimes these are uncomfortable conversations to have, (laughs) but it is simply a fact of life. You know, menopause is a normal transition and um, it's something that we should be talking about. And I know a wall that you've been trying to break down this entire podcast right there. So another issue sort of behind that wall that I want to talk about before I let you go is menopause and sex. This is a big area that no one wants to talk about either. Yeah, you know, this was a really interesting episode. And what I learned was that, you know, anywhere between 17 and 45 percent of postmenopausal women say they find sex painful. To me, that's a lot of women. Mm-hmm. And part of it has to do with certain menopausal symptoms. Now, you take that and women oftentimes are struggling with pain before they go into menopause for myriad reasons. It's just really, it's something that we need to be talking about. So I interviewed Dr. Deborah Wickman from Banner Health here in Phoenix, Arizona. And it's really interesting to hear her perspective. So she, part of her work involves just getting women to learn to love their intimate anatomy because Mm -hmm. that is so much of it too, because I mean, physical pain is part of it, but so many women struggle with, I, I think you would say the psychological or emotional pain of their bodies. So something that Deborah Wickman talked to me about is, you know, in terms of trying to not only just identifying and treating pain, which is really the doctor side of her, she's also a counselor. And so, you know, she wants to help women love themselves and just kind of connect with ourselves, especially as we get older when, you know, in our heads, a lot of us feel like we're still 20, but physically, you know, we're getting older and we live in a society where more often than not, it feels like women get old and men don't. (laughs) All right, we'll leave it there for now. KJZZ senior field correspondent, Kathy Ritchie. The podcast is period the end, but not really. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Kathy, thanks so much for coming back on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lauren. I appreciate the time. And now let's turn to international news. And for that, I am joined by Rob Hugh Jones from the BBC in London. Good morning this morning, Rob. Happy New Year. Thank you. Good morning, Lauren. Happy New Year to you and your listeners. Thank you. And so this morning, since it's the beginning of the year, let's take a look at the year ahead and pick out a few big stories that the BBC will be watching carefully this year. It's a big year for elections around the world, including one expected there in the UK. But one of the most interesting will be in Russia. So tell us more about that election, Rob. Vladimir Putin's position as president as we head into 24 will be something to watch. 
It really will. And as we head into 2024, we're uh, we're obviously we're we're into the new year now. But in February, it'll be two years since his so-called special military operation began in Ukraine. Of course, that's what the Russians call the invasion, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine that we saw in uh, February of two years ago. Uh, so that anniversary comes up uh, shortly. And, uh, and of course, Russia is now looking at U.S. and Western and European assistance for Ukraine and hoping that that reduces. And therefore, they will then think that their chances of winning the war improve. And if you look at the kind of body language and the behavior coming out of the Kremlin, you would say that they look increasingly confident. Last year, Mr. Putin canceled uh, an annual question and answer session, which is he's very famous for. Uh, and that's because the news out of Ukraine was not good for the Russians. This year, it's better. And that event went ahead just before uh, Christmas. So the various signs suggest that the Russians are feeling a, a little bit better than they might have been. Mm -hmm. And even if you go back to the summer, you know, he was up against the Wagner group, who are these paramilitaries who work with the Russian troops, marching on Moscow and defying him and challenging him, his authority. I mean, you know, he was on pretty rocky ground. He's in a better place now. Now, that is the kind of backdrop to an election in Russia that will happen in March. And there's no real surprised to, to tell you that Mr. Putin will win that by a landslide. Mm -hmm. Why? Because his critics, his main rivals, uh, Alexei Navalny in particular, is serving a 19-year prison sentence currently in Siberia. Uh, you know, they've been erased from the political landscape and the Kremlin pretty much owns the media message in Russia. I mean, our correspondent there was even telling me that some Russians he's spoken to said, if, if not Putin, then who? You know, who is the alternative to, to even vote for? All right. A few more major elections to watch for this year, Rob. There are some big ones coming in South Asia in the coming months, particularly in India, right? Why is that such an interesting election for us to watch? Yes, there are big elections in, in South Asia. So we'll see Pakistan, Bangladesh. We expect to see Sri Lanka in the fall as well. Um, but India is really the most interesting one, I think. Um, India overtook China in terms of its size of population in 2023. It's now the world's largest uh, country by population. It's also the world's largest democracy. And that helps explain why its elections will happen in April and May. In other words, it's not kind of doesn't happen on one day. It happens across two months. And that gives you some idea of the uh, difficult logistics of actually holding a democratic election in a country as huge as India with such a huge population. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, Narendra Modi is the leader in India, and we expect him to win that election again. Um, that's partly because uh, he has fairly stringent rules around things like social media. Uh, most of the media in India is pro-government and pro his BJP party, which is the governing party. So he, in a way, he kind of owns the message. Mm -hmm. So what you should look out for in that election is, is it a free and fair election? Well, he'll say yes. Uh, some observers will say yes. The opposition will say no, not really, because you own the message and we can't really get in there. Um, talking of the opposition, there are something like 28 parties that are coming together, including the main opposition party, the Congress party, to try and build some sort of uh, united 
um, opposition against Modi to try and unseat Modi. You know, whether that happens or not, we don't really know. What we do know is that that country is enjoying a 7% growth rate at the moment. It's one of the economic bright spots in the world. It's the, far, it's the fastest growing developed economy at the moment, or uh, one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, India's doing okay, and we should kind of expect Modi to win it again, but it'll be an interesting one to watch. All right. And finally, we can't not talk about the Middle East as we look forward to 2024. The war between Israel and Hamas, of course, has dominated the international news agenda since October. How might this story progress in the new year, Rob? Well, that's right. So we all remember October the 7th when, you know, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, others crossed the border and attacked southern Israel. We we all remember that. And that's framed the news really in the last um, few months. And of course, what our correspondents on the ground say is, well, look, what's happened since in Gaza means that even when this war is finally wrapped up, whenever that may be in Gaza, uh, Gaza itself as an enclave is going to be pretty well uninhabitable. And you're also going to be left with a vast number of people uh, who are going to be feeling anger, resentment, uh, grief, uh, antipathy uh, towards the Israelis, probably more than they've perhaps ever had before. That's on one side of the fence. On the other side of the fence, of course, Israelis feel exactly the same. There's still enormous recrimination about what happened on uh, October the 7th and trauma and bitterness and anger and resentment. Now, the question is, who will that be aimed at? And in Israeli society, interestingly, the polls suggest that uh, most people want Netanyahu, the, the, the prime minister of that country, out. Mm-hmm. And some people want him out now. Mm-hmm. Um, so his poll ratings are not good. What he says is, look, there are big questions to be asked and answered about how our security worked or didn't work on October the 7th. But we should wait until after the war in Gaza before we ask those questions. So we'll be watching to see, well, what really happens there? Uh, Politically, Israel does not need to go to the polls until 2026. But will something happen in the interim? And let's not forget, of course, the US election. Um, What will Joe Biden want to say to the American people as he heads to the polls? He'll want to say, I stood firmly with Israel. Uh, I also tried to cut down the number of Palestinian deaths and casualties, and I brought an end to that war or helped bring an end to that war. That's the message he will want to put to mm. the American people. Question is, will it happen? Right now, the Israelis say they reckon they'll be in Gaza for the whole of 2024. Lots to watch for on that front. Rob Hugh Jones with the BBC in London joining us. Rob, thanks as always. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Lauren. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. The novel My Last Innocent Year was published in 2023, but starts in a dorm room in the 90s. That scene involves two students who have been friends for a while and their very different interpretations of what happened and why. The book is very loosely based on the author's experience, but she hasn't talked about it much until recently. The book delves into the shades of gray in many Me Too moments, especially before that phrase was coined. Daisy Alpert Florin joined my co-host Mark Brody last year to talk about her novel. The scene that opens the novel um, takes place between the main character, Isabel, and a friend of hers named Zev. And they've been friends for a while. This is their senior year. And Zev invites Bell up to his dorm room and she goes um, 
because she's kind of curious about what might happen between them. And the, the, you know, they start to be intimate, but then the night takes a turn. Um, and when Isabel asks him to slow down, he tells her, I don't think I can, and asks her why she came up there anyway. Um, and from there, she kind of just gives in to what happened, feels a lot of culpability about it, and isn't really sure what to call what has happened. It feels non-consensual, but the word rape um, doesn't really feel right. Um, and what happens from that point on is uh, a friend of Isabel's named Deborah sort of takes matters into her own hands. They perform an act of vigilante justice that then sort of sets the novel in motion. And this is based, at least in part, on an experience you had in, in your past, right? Yes. Um, I, I published an essay last week about how um, that scene and sort of this questionable sexual encounter that you aren't really sure what to call came from an experience in my own life when I was a college freshman. Um, this was back in 1991, and um, the words around what that was um, were very hard for me to access. Over many years, I've thought about that night and tried to write about that night as memoir many, many times. But because the the details of that night are very hazy to me, in part because of the passage of time, but also because of perhaps the nature of trauma, I turned to fiction to sort of create a fictional scaffolding for what happened to me that I never really had the words for. Um, but that fictional scaffolding allowed me to um, inject a lot of the very real feelings that I had about that night and that I still have about it. What is the significance of putting a label, putting a word on what happened, as opposed to sort of knowing, if not all of the details of what happened, like the the where and the exactly when, but like knowing how you felt about it or how it made you feel. Yeah, finding the name was really, really important to me. Um, and I think in part because that was that's sort of the way that we get justice for things by putting a name to something and, and creating a story around it, um, a narrative that makes sense to an external investigator, for example. So the name becomes very important just in terms of understanding that perhaps something has happened to you, that you have not been culpable, but some a harm has been done to you. And that's what the novel explores, because when Isabel and her friend Deborah perform this act of vigilante justice, it involves using the word rapist um, to, to identify Zev, and that causes a lot of uproar on campus. And for Isabel the word feels both right and wrong. She wants to claim that word, but then she also isn't really sure. And I think that kind of mirrors how how I felt in the aftermath of what happened and how I still, you know, st I still struggle with those feelings today. You mentioned that you sort of struggled to write about this over the years, maybe in a nonfiction way, as opposed to how you ultimately handled it by being able to use it as sort of a, the basis for, for a, a novel. I'm wondering, though, even sooner when this book came out earlier this year, 
why why did did you choose maybe not to talk about your experience until much more recently after the book had been out for a few months? You know, it was interesting. Um, I hadn't really intended to talk about my own experience, in part because I I wanted the novel to stand on its own, and I I believe the novel does stand on its own. Um, the novel is really a, you know a, an artistic creation, and I don't want there to be too much confusion with my my own life. But in the conversations that I've had in the three months since the book has come out with people in book clubs and at book events and online, this is the scene that I'm asked the the most often about, um, which makes sense because it is the scene that opens the novel. And it can also um, be considered a controversial scene because of the way that it explores sexual violence in a very nuanced way. Um, I I don't really come down in a black and white way. I sort of stay in those gray areas, which I think can be uncomfortable for some readers. But the more that I've talked to people about the book and talked about the book myself, it it has helped me crystallize things in my own mind. Like I finished writing the novel a long time ago, but I'm still grappling with the issues. And I I think I will continue to do so for a a long time. I want to ask you about the nuances and the gray areas, because I think for a lot of people, the idea of sexual violence or rape or assault is a very black and white thing, like it happened or it didn't. This is what happened. This is what didn't happen. But as you write, that's not really the way this all happens. Like there's a lot of nuance here. Yes, I think that, I mean, that that's my experience. And certainly there are incidents of sexual violence that do not, um, you know, include any nuance at all. So I want to acknowledge that. Sure. But this, this particular um, scene, you know, which takes place between two friends, Isabel willingly goes up to his dorm room um, and she kind of you know, begins to have a sexual encounter with him that that feels consensual to her. She's kind of just exploring what that might look like. But when the night sort of there's there's sort of a turning point for her where things seem to have um, moved into a place beyond her control. And I think that that is something that a lot of women, I think, can relate to. And I think the way that just speaking broadly, the way that women are socialized in this culture is to maybe, you know, go along with something, um, even if it doesn't really feel right, because they're just not really sure how to, how to get out of a situation. They might feel unsafe, you know, getting out of a situation, or they may just not want to, you know, kick up a fuss. Um, as silly as that sounds, I do, I do think that's a very real impulse for, for women socialized in our culture. And am I right that you have a child in college and one on the verge of going to college now? I do. I have one um, child who is a college sophomore, my son, and then my daughter um, is about to be a high school senior. So she's looking um, at colleges, too. I've definitely had many conversations with them just around these issues. And I think just living through you know, the Trump years and the Me Too movement, they're very aware of it. I, I hope it's changing behaviors behind closed doors. You never really know what happens behind closed doors. But on this side of the door, I, I am hopeful that that the right conversations are happening. 
All right. That is Daisy Alpert Florin, author of My Last Innocent Year. Daisy, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That'll do it for this Tuesday edition of the show. Happy New Year to everyone. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday. And we will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning at 9 with much more. Don't forget, don't forget to also follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.